All right, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, thank you, Pastor Greg, for allowing me to jump off the bench and pinch hit today. And um, always excited to do that. Coach basketball for a while, you know, and the guy that doesn't get to play much, he gets, gets put in the game, he's always super excited. So I, I'm not a real emotional kind of guy, but it's always, always exciting to be able to share God's word. And uh, building program, uh, a building opportunity, this exciting discussion we had last, last hour. Uh, it's really great to have to trust the Lord for his leading and to, to love one another enough to have good discussions and, and thoughts about what's going on. I remember being a submissions pastor in Detroit, and, and one, one time uh, we were planning a church in Hamtramck. If you're familiar with Detroit, Hamtramck's like a it's a two-square-mile city within the city of Detroit, so it's got its own. It's bordered on two sides by two auto plants, and was historically a Polish community. Now it's a, quite a multi-ethnic, um, a varied religious community. First place in the United States where the public call to prayer was issued by a mosque in in, uh, in Hamtramck there, and so it's a very needy place for the gospel. And and um, one of our seminary guys had been working there at a rehab facility and was burdened to to go and plant a church there and. Um, we were so excited about that opportunity, but looking for a place was hard in an urban setting like that. So we found this this two bay diesel repair shop basically on the corner in Hamtramck, and it was it was a mess. I mean, let me tell you, um, we had to fill the pits in with concrete blocks and stuff, and 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 uh, rewire the thing and redo the bat. You know, really do the bathrooms. I guess there were bathrooms, but it was an auto shop, so you know what that's like, and. Um, I just put a lot of sweat equity into that and, and saw the Lord bless. There's a church established there now. Um, just a real blessing to, to be engaged in that process of faith and hard work and, and determination to trust God and, 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 and share the gospel and see, see what God does. And God's doing that here too. And it's a real blessing for our family to be here, having joined the church just a couple weeks ago and, and so glad to do that. I was reading a book, uh, actually I, I required my students to read a book in the class I'm teaching in Evangelism and Discipleship called The Compelling Community by Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever. And the subtitle of that book is Where God's Power Makes a Church Attractive. And um, there's a lot of, lot of philosophies when it comes to church growth, what attracts people to a church, but the point of these authors is that there should be something supernatural, something gospel focus that actually makes a church attractive. We talk about a gospel plus type churches, which really people are gathered around things uh, besides the gospel, uh, and p- potentially even things where they would gather together if there were no gospel. You know, what, what activities does this have for my family, or what kind of social niche do, do I feel comfortable with, or, or, or you could go on and on in the list. But they really argue for, for a, a gospel revealing community instead. That is, that the fellowship of God's people is such, of such a nature that, that people see the gospel lived out as they see their love for one another. And, and um, just really in passing, they, they touch on this text in, in Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 36 through 50. And I was, as I was reading that, that textbook a couple weeks ago, I was like, that that, that is really important. It's a text where, where we see that, that God's forgiveness, that Christ's forgiveness causes someone to act in extravagant love toward the Savior. 
and be an example to others. And that, that example is, is an example to us today. And the title of my message is, is Forgiven to Love. Does, does Christ's forgiveness of, of you and your sins, does it, does it create in you an impulse of love? Love of worship expressed to the Savior? A love that, that reaches out to others, that actually understands that the gospel is available to transform lives regardless of a person's background, uh, their religious background, their ethnic background, their social background, the sin struggles that they've been engaged in, is, is that what motivates us to gather together as a community? And I think that, that was a helpful thing to, for me to be reminded about. And this kind of supernatural love is only possible if we really understand the depth of our sin against a holy God, but we also understand the payment made for that sin by the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we prize the forgiveness we receive of that because of what Christ has done for us. And a true understanding of that forgiveness motivates us to love God and others and be a community that really reveals the gospel. Let's take a look at this passage, this account in Luke 7, 36-50, and I'll have a relatively short message, but my goal is to, to look at this narrative, the parts of it, and then to draw some lessons out of it that we can think about for our own lives and our own motivation, but also that can kind of turn our attention toward what we're doing together as we, as we celebrate the Lord's table together. And so that's my goal here in the next 20 or so minutes that, that we have here to spend in God's Word. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36-50. through 50. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, requesting Jesus in this, this context, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Very tender picture there. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, That's the Pharisee's name. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, a kiss of welcome, but she, since the time I've came, I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little." Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. What a, what a wonderful account, a familiar story to us, but a wonderful account of, of great love that is motivated by incredible forgiveness. And I hope this will be an encouragement to you today. We see three main characters in this account. There are more people there, but three main characters. We have Simon the Pharisee, the one hosting the dinner. He has invited Jesus to come and talk more about what he's been preaching. Um, you, many of you know the Pharisees were, were one of the most influential Jewish sects of the day. They attempted to shape the religious life of, of the community and the ordinary Jew through their traditions. They applied a lot of tradition to to the Old Testament law and, and really work this out in the most minute of ways. They also had considerable influence over local scribes. And so uh, local scribes would preach in the synagogue and according to the Pharisees' interpretations. And when the Pharisees in Jerusalem heard that some scribes uh, had seen Jesus around the community teaching, they, they came. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, many of these Pharisees were probably like Paul used to be before his conversion. He had said that, that um, he was very careful to keep the law. He was, quote-unquote, blameless as to the law, or at least he thought he was. Uh, while many of the Jews tithed their income, the Pharisees even tithed out of their herb garden, right? They tithed out of their mint. While others fasted periodically, they fasted twice a week. They maintained purity at their meals to the point of straining their soup so that they could strain out a gnat out of anything that they had eaten, which doesn't sound like a bad idea, but that's what they would do. And they avoided sharing a table with sinners because they would create an unclean situation, especially people like tax collectors and others who habitually broke the law. So Simon the Pharisee was there hosting the meal. Jesus was there, of course. Jesus, who had been preaching in this passage, in this chapter, he's ministering in Galilee. We find him in Capernaum in verse 1 and Nain in verse 11. And he had just spoken to John the Baptist's disciples here. John sent them to to really make sure Jesus was who he had said he was. John had met Jesus at his baptism. And uh, Jesus says, I am performing miracles and I am preaching the gospel. Go back and tell John this. So, Jesus was in the community preaching the gospel and performing miracles that authenticated his authority. And so this woman was there as well, living and must have seen this. The Pharisees were saying about him that he eats with publicans and sinners. You see that in verse 34. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, presumably all types of sinners, not just the tax collectors. They were kind of the most notorious in the political setting of the day, but, but tax collectors and all kinds of, of sinners. And, and, and yet these sinners were seeing the justice of God vindicated as it bore fruit in their own life. Kind of they were seeing the effects of the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance that they had, they had received themselves. They had turned from their sin, were trusting in the message that Jesus had preached. And so they were experiencing the justice of God, and joyfully so, but the Pharisees did not want anything to do with it. And that's kind of the context uh, where Jesus was now invited to dinner to kind of probably explain himself, to tell more about what message he was preaching and why he was doing what he was doing. And then the third character we see in this account is this woman who is ta- called a sinner. In verse 37, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. She had a reputation of being a sinner. We're not told the exact nature of her 
her sin. Um, sometimes this phrase was used for someone involved in immorality regularly, or adultery, or prostitution. Um, some have identified her with Mary Magdalene, who's, who's actually named in chapter 8, verse 2, though there's not a particular reason to think this is the same person as Mary Magdalene. It could have been. We're not told here. She remains unnamed, but her reputation has carried on even till today as we read this passage. Uh, this word, a sinner, could be general again, but we see Christ preaching a gospel message that goes out to all types of sinners. And so she is one that has, has heard it. This word, a sinner, is a word Luke uses regularly in his gospel. He uses more than any of the other gospel writers. And it shows Luke's and Jesus' care and compassion towards sinners throughout this gospel. And uh, I like to think maybe it was because Luke was, was a doctor. He had a great deal of concern for, for the needs of individuals. And, and so he emphasizes the fact that Christ in compassion welcomes all types of sinners to himself and to his message. Those are, the, those are the characters of the account, and you can see that. The setting is at Simon's house for dinner. And, and dinners in the time of Christ, you might be familiar with, were, were usually were served together as a, as a communal dinner. And, and they, they went around the table. They reclined on their elbow and their feet stretched away from the table. This was a pretty common method, though sometimes people would sit for meals as families. But it was usually held in a courtyard-type situation, and this, this account seems to be that kind of situation, more of an open area of the Pharisees' home. Pharisees were probably more wealthy people. They had more property and, and a larger area. And so at special meals like this, where a, a local celebrity would be invited to, to a, accompany the Pharisee at a meal, sometimes they would leave the doors open. They would allow people to come in and kind of sit around the wall and listen on the conversation listen in on maybe the correction that the Pharisee was going to offer to what had been preached in the community. Uh, That's likely what is going on here. Um, Simon doesn't rebuke her actions of being there so much as he did the fact that she approached Jesus and touched him. So I think that setting is probably very clear. Her presence is explained because she had heard him preach. I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but she had heard him preach and I believe had believed his message. And so she came to to listen to him say more and then to also express her love to him through uh, wiping his feet with the perfume that, that she brought. Uh, Jesus had been speaking to the crowds and, and she was a part of the crowd. And so we see this setting, the atmosphere of the dinner. We're not exactly sure. Jesus is certainly under evaluation by Simon. Um, he seems to be open, wanting to hear, but, but not entirely critical, but likely somewhat suspicious of Christ's message. And so that's the, the atmosphere. And we can tell that by the thoughts that he has in response to what Jesus allows to take place. It's an atmosphere of, of skepticism. And so we enter into the story, and it's a very easy story to picture in our mind's eye with with that setting laid out, I believe. Uh, We see um, uh, this is a similar account to some we hear about Mary, the sister of Martha. And in the other Gospels, they all record a a similar account, but it's dealing with Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, as she comes and anoints Jesus' feet and his head, as a matter of fact. But this is a different different person, a different situation at a different time and place in, in Christ's ministry. So it's not the same uh, situation as the one in Bethany. But we see this lady's actions described in great detail. Um, 
she doesn't actually say anything. You know, she's the main character besides Christ in the story, but she doesn't say anything. But her actions speak quite loudly. And so we look at her life and we learn from it. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. You, you may know that this was a very expensive gift for her to pour out on her Savior's feet. An alabaster uh, vial of perfume would sometimes cost a, a year's wages for a common laborer. It was something that showed great sacrifice. And then her actions speak as an example of one who, is, who has been forgiven and express, expresses her love and gratitude in a very costly sacrifice. Her actions show great courage as we see her coming before the Pharisees. The Pharisee knew that she was a sinner. Christ actually said that, that she, her sins were many. He says that very specifically. Uh, the people there probably knew who she was and her reputation. And yet she had enough courage to come in front of them to show her love to Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, the look of a Pharisee to this woman must have been enough to freeze summer into howling winter. The Pharisees had an insufferable contempt for all who did not live up to their standards. But she instead had courage. It was certainly a picture of sacrifice as she comes to use her costly perfume to pour out to anoint Christ. It was, it was a picture of humility, of washing his feet, of weeping in public, of wiping her tears off of his feet with her hair. To let her hair down even was, was a sign of humility. It was something with great emotion that she did. She wept as she did it. And you know what it's like to do something and mean what you do, but you also probably know what it's like to do something and weep while you do it. It, it shows an entire investment of your person, and she was doing that. It shows actions of gratitude. She was grateful for the forgiveness that even she had received based on the gospel that Christ was preaching. It showed great honor to the one whom she was anointing, that he should have his feet washed. The act of kissing his feet and anointing them was an act of great reverence. It showed that she considered him to be very important. And, of course, it was an act of devotion and love. Acts done. In spite of the onlooker's words, in spite of the onlooker's thoughts, she poured her love out to her Savior. Her actions could be summed up as, as emotional, repentant, thankful devotion fueled by love in response to the grace that was given to her as a known sinner. What a blessing to see this picture here as she pours out her, her vial of, of perfume and anoints Christ with her tears. And then we see also in this account the reaction of the Pharisees. In verse 39, it says, When Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, and note that, he said this to himself. He's, he's in his own mind, not speaking audibly. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he'd know who or what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. He doesn't believe Jesus is a prophet, and he says that in his own mind, and yet, ironically, we see Jesus knowing exactly what he's saying, proving that he is a prophet. It's a really neat little twist we see here about Jesus' omniscience being revealed, his character as, as the God-man. Uh, the reaction of the Pharisees shows a skeptical attitude toward Jesus, that they were trying to answer the question, who is this man and why does he do the things he does? And, and their answer was, clearly he's not 
religious like we are because he's allowing this woman to approach him and touch him while he's here enjoying a meal. His reaction is one that Jesus' acceptance disproves who, who he says he is. And yet, we know from the account, it actually does prove that Jesus says who he really says he is. He just wasn't who the Pharisees wanted. Jesus, in the account, gives an illustration of these two debtors, verses 41 through 43. He talks about the two men who owe a great debt, and one owes a much greater debt than the other. Uh, they both were called upon to repay, and they couldn't repay. One debtor owed about 20 months' worth, and the other uh, about two months' worth of wages. And yet they were both forgiven. It says the, the, the one that was owed the debt, to whom the debt was owed, graciously forgave them. Use a word that includes a word that we translate grace in the New Testament. He graciously forgave them. They didn't deserve it, but he did so as an act of, of grace. It was unmerited by the debtor themselves. And so Jesus points this out to say, listen, there's, there's one person with a small debt that was forgiven, one person with a much larger debt that was forgiven, and the, and the money lender forgave them both. And we can, we can probably make parallels who, who, this, who this story is talking about, of course. The money lender would be God forgiving debt. The debt that Jesus is referring to is the debt of sin. The different debtors picture different types of sinners, maybe some that sinned more, more publicly or, or more heinously than others, some that didn't think they sinned very much. The lesser debtor referred, of course, to the Pharisee, and the, the greater debtor to the woman who was no, a known sinner. And the point was that, that neither one could repay their debt. And Jesus' question is, which one, um, which one of these debtors would love more in response to their debt? And Simon said, answered, said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And then Jesus makes a comparison then very specifically between this woman who had come. He makes an application of this illustration to the woman and to the Pharisee. He contrasts Simon's lack of courtesy with the woman's act of love. In her washing Jesus' feet, she showed great love and consideration when when he came into Simon's house, Simon did not wash his feet. It was customary to do so for a, a special guest to wash their feet after they'd been walking around the city. But Simon didn't do that. But she did do that. In kissing his feet, Simon could have at least kissed him in the face, which was a form of greeting. But he didn't do that, and yet she would not cease to kiss his feet. In anointing his feet with perfume, she sacrificed and showed great love for him, while Simon showed a great deal of coldness toward him. So you can see this, ca- this contrast very clearly laid out. And then he contrasts little and much forgiveness as well. Jesus pronounced that her sins had been forgiven because she loved much. He doesn't gloss over her sinfulness. He doesn't dismiss her sinfulness. He says her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Now the question comes up, was she forgiven because of this expression of love? Did she earn his forgiveness? And that's not the point that Jesus is making. Jesus says, because she's been forgiven much, and this goes along with the story he just told, because she's been forgiven much, that results in her showing great love. And her great love that is shown shows that she recognizes that she has been forgiven much. And so that's the point Jesus is making here. Her great love reflects her knowledge that she has received great forgiveness. 
It could have been said this way, your sins have been forgiven. Her sins have been forgiven, therefore she loved much. And this passage really ties together one's spiritual condition and their actions. God's kindness in forgiving her produces a humble and loving gratitude from her. And then finally, the, thing we, the last thing we see here is, is Jesus' response to the woman, or his final response to her, and kind of the, how the onlookers perceive that response. And his final response was that he gifted her with the assurance that God knew she had, been, she had acted in this way because she has been forgiven. In verse 48, he says, Your sins have been forgiven. Probably in response to hearing the message that he preached there in the town, she believed that message, her sins had been forgiven. And now this great love she shows to him in the picture we're given is an evidence that she realizes she's been forgiven. Jesus pronounces this. And of course, the onlookers, as many of, of we are, as, as, as are we as we watch this account, they're good theologians, right? They say, who is this man who forgives sins? A man preaching in town, traveling through the countryside. He can't just pronounce forgiveness of sins unless he is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so they actually have the right, right you know, they have the right observation. Who is this man who even forgives sins? And, and this man is Jesus Christ. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, as if to affirm that what they're thinking is right and what they're saying is right. What are some lessons we can learn from this account as we, as we look towards celebrating the Lord's table together? And I just, I have six simple lessons as we look at this narrative and the parts of it. You might be able to come up with more. You may be able to add one or two to it. Or maybe you don't like my lessons, and that's okay. Uh, pick the ones that work, work for you but that are faithful to the account. The first lesson, I think, is maybe the, the most obvious one but the one we might miss because we focus on the woman, we tend to focus on her. The first lesson is that Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus is a great Savior. Jesus Christ can forgive sinners and make them to be at peace with God. The question being asked here in this account is, who is this man who can say he forgives sins? And that is answered with a clear answer. He is the forgiver of sins, the Savior of sinners. And we see that in the scripture, John 3.16, a very familiar passage says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus Christ, the same Jesus in this account. He not only gave his life, living a perfect life of righteousness, but he gave his life on the cross. He died for our sins. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What a blessing that Jesus is a great savior. He'll save those who put their faith and trust in him, this lady was a sinner by reputation and action and choice. Jesus affirms the fact that she was a sinner, and yet because she believed that he was a great savior, she was pronounced forgiven. Jesus is a great savior. I love the hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Jesus is a great Savior. Second point that I'd like to share. Jesus offers a great salvation. 
He offers a great salvation. He saves sinners by His grace by means of faith. They cannot be saved by doing good works. Her, her pouring out the perfume did nothing to earn her salvation. It showed that she loved Him and that she knew she was forgiven. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. She was saved because of her faith, and that's what Jesus says at the very end. Your faith has saved you. Jesus offers a great salvation by faith, by grace, alone. Faith is an unreserved trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf as the the only means for forgiveness of sins and salvation from eternal judgment. And if you're here today, if you're You've been coming for a while, or if you're visiting today, I want you to know, just like this woman in this account, you can come to Christ and be forgiven of your sins. Turn from your sins and put your faith and trust in him alone. He offers a great salvation. He's a great Savior. The third point I'd like to make is that Jesus saves great sinners. Jesus Christ can save all types of sinners, and sinners of any type can find their hope in him. There is no person, no place, from no background that is beyond the reach of his grace. No one at all. And if we had time today, we could probably give testimony of, of ourselves and how God reached down in his grace to save us. And we could tell testimonies about other people that we didn't think really practically they were savable, and yet God transformed their lives. And you may be here today, and you may be like, no, not me. Not me. I, 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 am, I am beyond the reach. I'm in too much darkness. My, my relationships are too complicated. My sin is, is too deep. My despair is too great. Jesus can save you, too. I can't even imagine what this woman was thinking when she heard the message of the gospel. Can I, can I approach that, that man, that teacher? Can I believe that message? Is he truly living on my behalf? And is he going to die? For me, she believed that message, and Jesus pronounced her forgiven. Jesus saves great sinners. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, listen, sinners, sinners pay for their sin. Unless, unless. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Okay, he, he gives quite a list there. But he also gives quite a list of people who were, who were washed and justified by the Spirit, by the work of Christ. What a blessing that Jesus saves great sinners. Charles Spurgeon said, Grace has pitched upon the most unlikely of cases in order to show itself to be grace. He says, Let us remark that God's providence brought this woman to listen to Jesus speak. Perhaps she stood in the street, attracted by the crowd, and as she listened to this Jesus speak, his words held her attention. She had never heard of a man speak this message of mercy and forgiveness with such authority. She had never heard someone say, Come unto me, all you who are heavy burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Imagine what she had heard probably most of her life is that we have to bear the burdens of the law, and we have to perform to earn our righteousness from Christ. She saw herself, her sin, and the tears began to flow, but tears of sorrow for her sin mixed with tears of joy for her forgiveness. How can it be, is there truly a Father in heaven that runs to meet prodigals and hugs them to himself? She in that moment became a new creation in Christ. Old things were passed away and new things came. Jesus saves great sinners. No no sinners beyond his reach. Fourth point, Jesus deserves great love. We see this very clear in this account, this narrative. Acts of loving and sacrificial worship, evidence and awareness that we have received great forgiveness. They're, they're done in response to God's grace and his forgiveness, not to earn it. Jesus deserves great love. Who would have thought a sinful woman like this would turn from sensual worldliness to sacrificial worship? But she did. Jesus deserves great love. What grace have you experienced in your life, and what love do you show back to your Savior? through service, acts of sacrifice, through emotion, through participation in in sharing the gospel with others. This woman evidenced a deep repentance that she she was willing to go before all who were watching and, and express her joy and love. Let's do the same. Number five, we face a great temptation. We certainly don't want to ignore the example of the Pharisee, right? We all have within us that tendency, like the Pharisee, to be skeptical, skeptical of the message of the gospel, that it's truly free to all who will come to him. We have a tendency to be judgmental towards everyone except for ourselves, right? Who is this man who even forgives sins? Who is this woman who would come into my presence? Who am I to stand in judgment on someone else? Well, I am special, and I do stand in judgment on other people. We see the example of the Pharisee, and we face a great temptation to, to take that grace that we have received so freely and then to, to just hoard it to ourselves and then sit in judgment on others. And Paul, Paul the Apostle said, we don't judge people that are outside the church. We preach the gospel to them. Okay, And that's, that's what the Pharisee needed to, to hear and to learn. And last, the last point, we have a great opportunity Let's remember, as we look at this message and this narrative, that we have a great opportunity. As we come to the Lord's table and we declare the death of Christ until he comes, we have a great opportunity to declare the gospel, to tell people that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As we gather together in fellowship around the Lord's table, we say, we believe Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was was shed for us and and we proclaim that 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 was done for you as well. We have an opportunity to declare the gospel. And then we also have the opportunity to display the gospel. Not just declare it, but to display it as we love one another. As we supernaturally love one another and we love God because of what he's done for us. We have a great opportunity. A great Savior offers great salvation to great sinners who, when saved, show great love. We must not yield to the great temptation of self-sufficiency or judgmentalism, but take advantage of the great opportunity to tell others the gospel. So I hope this 
this lesson is, just motivates you even more. And I appreciate the opportunity to share it as we approach the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, thank you.